0: Welcome to the Bridge Policy Download, produced by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today, we're bringing you the audio from a recent webinar we held on antitrust. Antitrust and other regulatory authorities around the world are busily assessing potential enforcement actions against big digital platforms, including Google, Facebook, and Amazon, among others. The panel addresses the following questions. Should governments establish regulations that set clear rules of conduct for digital platforms? Can existing consumer welfare standards guiding antitrust enforcement effectively curb abuses by digital platforms? And finally, are proposals to heighten antitrust prohibitions and reverse antitrust burdens of proof de facto regulation? If you'd like to contact a scholar involved in this episode, please email mercatusoutreach at mercatus.gmu.edu. Don Boudreau, Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics here at Mercatus, will be moderating this panel of leading antitrust scholars, regulators, and practitioners to address these timely questions about digital platforms.
1: So as most people here know, antitrust is back on the rise. The authorities uh, around the world are weighing taking action against platforms such as or especially Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Some of these initiatives, such as the European Union's Digital Markets Act, set regulatory rules of the game that platforms must follow. Others would toughen antitrust law. For example, legislation introduced here in the US by Senator Amy Klobuchar would forbid most mergers and acquisitions by dominant platforms and subject many of their other business arrangements to far greater antitrust scrutiny. What all the recent government proposals have in common is the imposition of new burdens on platforms' abilities to engage in a wide range of standard commercial conduct. In sum, different sorts of interventionist proposals are now in play. Should government rely on forward-looking regulation that sets sort of clear rules of the road, or more on traditional antitrust enforcement directed at condemning specific anti-competitive acts after the fact, or should it rely on both? Relatedly, are proposals to establish tougher antitrust standards, including reversing burdens of proof to disfavor companies. Is this the introduction of a new sort of precautionary principle in antitrust that might stymie consumer welfare-enhancing innovation? And speaking of consumer welfare-enhancing innovation, what becomes of the consumer welfare standard in all of this? So we have an all-star panel today of antitrust experts to debate this hot topic. Uh, In the interest of time, I will merely list their their names and affiliations. Uh, and then we'll 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 kick it off after that. So you've all met Alden. Alden is Senior Research Fellow here at Mercatus. And uh, then we have Scott Hempel, who's the Moses Grossman Professor of Law at New York University. We did have Howard Schlansky from Georgetown, but he unfortunately fell ill. He can't join us. We do have John Yoon, a colleague of mine from over in the Scalia Law School here at Mason. We have Professor Nicola Petit, who is uh, the Joint Chair of, in Competition Law at the Department of Law, at the Robert Schumann Center for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute. And we have, lastly, uh, Professor Orian Portoise, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, who's Director of Antitrust and Innovation Policy at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, as well as Adjunct Professor of Competition Law at the Global Antitrust Institute, and also at George Mason, and at the Catholic University of Paris. So, following the presentations, we we'll short presentations. Each presenter will take about five minutes. I'll, I'll kick that off, and then we'll have a, a roundtable discussion, and then we'll end with some Q and A from the audience, uh, and then we'll we'll conclude here. So, uh, let me ask uh, Alden to uh, kick off the first round.
2: Thanks very much, Don. I believe it's widely accepted that the new digital platforms have bestowed huge benefits on society. Despite this, or perhaps because of this, platforms have been under siege by competition authorities around the world. In the United States, of course, Facebook and Google are facing monopolization suits brought by the Federal Trade Commission Justice Department respectively, uh, as well as many states. Uh, Legislation introduced in the U.S. Senate would make it virtually impossible for platforms with, with large market shares to engage in acquisitions and would subject them to far more exacting monopolization standards. And by the way, other companies as well would be subjected to tougher standards. Other policy proposals being floated include the structural breakup or government regulation of so-called dominant platforms. Uh, Changes along these lines would, in effect, displace a long-time American antitrust consensus based on a consumer welfare standard. Now, looking overseas, competition policy initiatives to rein in platforms are ubiquitous. European Commission cases against dig- digital platforms have proliferated, uh, based, in my view, on a precautionary principle that is not centered on consumer welfare. Uh, Professor Paltruz may have something more to say in a few minutes regarding that principle. What's more, recent developments around the world suggest that anti-cross-directed and large digital platforms may be morphing into Regulation. According to a distinguished former enforcer, ex Canadian Competition Commissioner John Peckman, very recent initiatives by the EU, France, Germany, the UK, Japan, and Australia, among others, manifest an emerging patchwork of digital regulation that further amplifies existing incoherence and uneven application of competition regimes on the technology sector and digital markets across the globe. Incoherence, of course, is never good. In addition to threatening divergent outcomes, the emergence of incoherent digital competition regulation in view of case-by-case law enforcement would likely slow digital innovation, significantly reduce consumer welfare, and harm the economy. Regulation, if adopted, could also lead to regulatory manipulation by dominant platform firms in order to impose costs that disproportionately harm their rivals. Such a result would, of course, we can not strengthen competition. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Alden. So let me ask uh, Scott Hempel, uh, who has served uh, as an expert advisor to plaintiffs as well as a commenter on antitrust and regulatory issues. What's your view of the appropriate role of antitrust in this context uh, and should regulation be considered at all? Should we rely just on antitrust? What's the mix of regulation and antitrust?
3: Yeah, so um, first, thanks to the organizers for the opportunity to be with y'all. I should mention more specifically, you know, I've been working with the Colorado Attorney General on the Colorado, Nebraska-led uh, states case against Google. I don't plan to say anything about the Google case itself. In any event today, I'm speaking only for myself. So the ambitious agenda that Don and Alden have set out is way beyond my capacity, particularly given the five minutes we have for introductory uh, reactions. Let me, let me pick off a piece of that puzzle that I think is uh, particularly important. And I think that's a question of nascent competition and acquisition of nascent competitors and how we might think about that from uh, an antitrust perspective. This is a topic that I know is near and dear to uh, a number of hearts on the panel. I see John smiling. John may have some reactions as well. Um, for those who haven't read his congressional testimony from late 2019, I'd you know commend that uh, to your attention. So what I have in mind by nascent competition are firms whose perspective innovation, I think innovation is an important thing to focus on here, represents a serious uh, future threat to an incumbent. So you know, what do I have in mind by that? I think in a, a leading example that we might end up even talking about a little bit is Facebook. Uh, the idea would be that Instagram and WhatsApp, these firms that were acquired by Facebook, were nascent competitors for Facebook at the time Facebook acquired them. Now, this is not, of course, limited to tech promising but unproven cure for disease could represent nascent competition for a therapy that's a uh, current standard of care. Upstart nascent competitors are an important source of innovation, both in their own right and to the extent that they spur an incumbent to innovate in response. And so therefore, what to do about the possible elimination of nascent competition is a, an urgent concern. It's a first-order problem for antitrust authorities you know, all over the world from the FTC and DOJ uh, and, and, and on to the number of jurisdictions who are thinking about just this set of questions. Now, I'm, you know, I'm gonna talk my book here a little bit. Tim and Wu and I have a, a paper published uh, recently in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review that thinks about, tries to work through nascent competition as a distinct analytical category and tries to work out what antitrust law should do about it. Now, one of the reasons we should pay attention is that a nascent competitor often, not always, but often may present a distinctive or even a uniquely potent threat to an entrenched incumbent. What's important here though, and what makes this an interesting puzzle and not necessarily perfectly straightforward, is that the nascent competitor's potency as a competitor is not yet fully developed. It's unproven the firm's eventual significance is uncertain, right? Raising a question of what we should do in those situations. Now, this is gonna be particularly true in environments where uh, there's rapid technological change, right? Uh, so in these places where innovation is so important, we're also gonna have a kind of fog to some degree about uh, what might have happened. Now, this uncertainty has a has a natural effect, I think, on regulators. This uncertainty, this lack of current, present competition might make enforcers or courts hesitant or unwilling uh, to prevent incumbents even when they are in the process of uh, acquiring or otherwise excluding uh, a nascent threat. You might even imagine an enforcer insisting on strong proof that the competitor, if left alone, would have made it, would have been a contender, would have been a successful competitor. Now, I think if you have such a high bar, you're going to miss a lot. I'm encouraged that uh, you know enforcers have you know taken up this challenge with respect to, for example, uh, Facebook and other platforms. Now, the main message of the paper, maybe we'll talk about it more in the Q&A, in the exchange, is that even if We don't know that a firm would have become a full-fledged competitor. This is still a suitable target for enforcement. This is not a new idea, right? You've probably heard this before. For anyone who paid any attention to the Microsoft case and certainly who paid attention to the 2001 uh, DC circuit opinion, will understand that central to that landmark of antitrust enforcement was the uncertainty as to whether Netscape and Java would have ever developed into a full-fledged competitor to Windows, which they were not uh, at the time of the the suit. Now, in the memorable words of the DC Circuit, you know, the court made clear that we should not grant free reign to incumbents to squash nascent, albeit unproven, competitors at will, right? Um, I think a similarly, ambitious and forward-leaning approach is important um, as a use of scarce enforcement resources beyond the context of pure exclusion, but to include mergers that implicate this nascent competition question. I'll stop
1: there for now. Right, good, good, good timing. Thank you. Um, so Howard Shlansky can't be with us, but I, I, my understanding from Alden is that he will, he will field the question we had in mind for Howard. Howard proposes something that he calls light touch platform regulation uh, centered on third party access. Uh, and and, and I, it's too bad he's not here because I would have loved to have heard what his qualms are about the viability of relying primarily uh, on antitrust suits. So, Alden?
2: Well, well, thanks, Don. What I'll do, I'll read a conclusion from a recent article on that specific topic co-authored by Howard and William Rogerson, also uh, published in the 2020 Penn Law Review. It says, digital platforms pose a particular challenge for antitrust enforcement. Those challenges arise technically and economically from the potential for such platforms to rise to dominance and for that dominance to remain durable through the operation of network effects and the dependence of competitors and complementary product providers on access to users on the incumbent platform. Moreover, particular conduct by the platform might affect different kinds of users, for example, advertisers versus end users in different ways, rendering the assessment of net competitive effects more complicated than in other settings. The challenges for antitrust arise doctrinally from the fact that the theories of harm that might address the special features of platform markets, notably obligations to deal with third parties, are at the outer boundary of antitrust law and only available in the most limited of circumstances that might often not exist in platform markets. For these reasons, traditional antitrust adjudication is unlikely to remedy the problems of platform markets or to do so in a blunt way that does not apply technical expertise to ensure that remedies are effective and beneficial. In this article, we have identified forms of regulation we think could in a specific context of dominant digital platforms, improve on the adjudicated model of antitrust enforcement while avoiding the most significant costs and burdens of traditional public utility regulation. Through limited and non-discriminatory access and interconnection, digital platforms could continue to innovate, compete, and provide network benefits to their users, while at the same time ensuring that actual and potential competitors can enter, gain traction, and expand their appeal to consumers. In short, Howard seems to be, said, to be saying that given the status of antitrust law and precedence, it would be very, very hard to win a case against the platform, also obviously time-consuming, whereas he believes that light-touch regulation can address real problems without going through all the complications of the uh, litigation process.
1: So now I want to turn to John Yoon and ask you, John, what, what possible harms uh, do you see emerging from regulation of platforms? And, and what limits, if any, should be placed on antitrust actions against these platforms?
4: Thanks, Don. Um, and thanks, Alden, and to the Mercatus Center and my fellow, fellow panelists. I'm sorry Howard can't be with us today. And thanks for the audience for listening in. Uh, so, yeah, you know, like as Scott mentioned, these these are big questions. And so I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little more broadly. And, um, you know, I currently view antitrust under sort sure, of three competing regimes, if you will, the current regime now, which is the consumer welfare standard and largely the rule of reason and per se could arguably fall under the rule of reason on one side of the sliding scale. Um, there's also a movement to move us to the prior regime or, you know, the neo Brandeisian movement or just the past antitrust approach to certain types of conduct and problems. And there's also a, a regulatory push and these aren't mutually exclusive. they can be complementary or substitutes to a degree. Um, but you know we could call that regulatory antitrust. I suppose there's a, a fourth one, uh, a libertarian approach of no antitrust, but that's largely fallen from the debate and I don't think too many people talk about it, but uh, it certainly is just as valid in terms of intellectual uh, benefits and costs of those regimes. So, you know, the current regime, you know, one of, I think the advantages of the rule of reason is it's fundamentally trying to understand the the conduct and nature of the firm and to administer it in a sort of efficient way. And so, you know, Scott and Professor Wu, they have a terrific paper that he mentioned, which I really would encourage everyone to read on nascent competition. It's very thoughtful. And it's how to move sort of the presumptions and precedents in a way that we can administer something that is legitimately a concern, which is these acquisitions of these larger competitors. And one could argue whether the standard should be this or that, but I really like those debates because it really is important in terms of administering which is arguably a very difficult uh, body of law because there's so much economics and law going in each direction and but so adhering to the current regime you know can sort of place you in the status quo that you don't want to do anything and that's completely not true right you know those those are effective arguments in it, sort of a broader policy debate. But I think within antitrust, I think it's well respected to stay within the standard and to try to make it more efficient in terms of the courts. And I think that's really great debates. And uh, Carl Shapiro, all the work he does. And, and um, you know, as I mentioned on nascent Competition, Scott and Tim. So uh, the, the alternative is re- regulatory antitrust. And, I, and when I say alternative, I realize it can be a compliment. And I think that's what Howard is talking about with with a lighter touch. And so I'm not trying to uh, pit them as complete opposites of each other. But, you know, it's clearly moving us to some degree or maybe to a lot of degree, depending on the type of of implementation that we're we're talking about from the courts to the legislation. And, you know, there are, are sort of costs and benefits to that. And I think certainly one of the costs is we're not sure what the objective is, right? At least the consumer welfare standard is very clear what the courts are using as their, their uh, sort of North Star, whereas there's conflicting um, interest in, in the regulatory sphere. And even if we, we agree that it should still be to maximize welfare of the markets and inefficiencies, how do you implement that, right? And implementation, I think, needs to be justified to some degree. To move it from the courts to the legislation, even a small amount, there has to be, I think, some showing that, uh, the courts are getting it wrong, or or it's not addressing a fundamental problem that we know is is wrong. And um, you know, I'm very happy actually that uh, there's a number of actions in the federal and state. And Scott mentioned that you know, I think it's really important to, to have both sides present their case. That's the, the nature of the of the court system. And I'll be interested, obviously, as everyone else is, of how these things turn out. Um, but I would worry that if, let's just say that the states don't get everything they want or the federal government doesn't get everything they want, that this is a proof set that uh, the antitrust system is broken. It's kind of a rock in a hard place for, for certain sectors. And so, you know, I, I really do think there's a virtue in the court system over the legislative system. And just to close my thoughts, I, I've been going on here is I go back to Tullock and his rent seeking arguments and the dangers of having regulatory capture and having uh, decisions made behind closed doors rather than in, in the open in, in, in courtroom. We might disagree with courts and we argue back and forth. And there's good law review articles on why courts things gets right or wrong. But those are really healthy. But when they happen in the legislation, I think there's a less of that that sunlight. And, and I worry a little bit about that. And Fred McChesney, his money for nothing. um, And I'm not talking about wanting my MTV badge but you know, the money for nothing, his idea is that it's a regulatory shakedown, right? There's a threat of doing something or doing something worse. And we're going to hold back if, you know, you give us some, some political, uh, greater political power through donations or greater influence. So I just worry about those factors coming into play, trying to fix perhaps a legitimate concern about an
1: antitrust problem that maybe the courts aren't quite getting right. Thank you, John. And thanks also for mentioning the late, great Fred McChesney. His work is really, really superb. I miss him a lot. Nicola, uh, let me ask you, how would a, a, a new dynamic antitrust analysis affect the assessment of large digital platform activities?
5: Thanks, Don, and, and thanks to everyone for um, the invitation and organization. So let me start with a few concrete puzzles and move on uh, with the answer to your question about uh, new dynamic and trust analysis. So the puzzles are this, uh, Microsoft missed search engines, Amazon missed online ads, Apple missed cloud computing, and Google missed social networks, and yet all of them survived and grew, adding new lines of businesses, overcoming rigidities, and pivoting away from there are national markets. So Amazon discovered cloud computing, as we know. Google developed other software products, including the Android ecosystem. Microsoft grew very large in gaming, and Apple developed tablets, watches, um, things like uh, wearables, and new technological platforms like the M1 chip. All right. So these are the facts that matter to me. And unless one accepts the extravagant proposition that uh, most of these instances of survival and growth reflect monopoly behavior. We should be ready to investigate other explanations. Now, the sad news is the tendency in the policy discussion is not this one, and you know some that like to take your the contrary concept to to the concept you use. The some like that like the old static antitrust analysis. They advocate to time travel to the sort of in hospitality tradition of antitrust. So last week we heard some people in the European Union. To propose, I quote, to go back to a more structural approach that we have abandoned. And so the calls are essentially to sort of revive a version of Nirvana Fallacy economics where agencies would be allowed to presumptively challenge big tech mergers because the transactions are second best compared to an economy where startups would mostly grow organically. Right. So others, of course, say, well, you we wish not do something so radical. We should look at business facts at a lower aggregation level restrict the time horizon and define the competitive constraints around the firm as more narrowly, and then we can catch some monopoly fish here, right? So with the benefits of hindsight, of course, you can sort of reverse engineer a transaction like Facebook, Instagram, and and even a very incredulous eye would be convinced by the theory in the case. Um, The problem, of course, is that this approach is very incremental. It's probably more of an artifact than an empirical that based on empirical facts, and it will achieve very little. Um, you won't sort of solve the sort of contestation that agitate the policy discussion. And we might end up in the long term with a worse system, which is more radical, less empirical, and, and more brutal to, to the market economy. Right, so, you know, um, let's rendezvous in five years, I can say rendezvous, I'm French myself, rendezvous in five years or six years, we've achieved nothing with these little cases and remedies that we try to administer, we need a more radical revolution in the field and more heavy handed uh, system that bearing on the economy, so My viewpoint, and I do a lot of work on that with people like Aurelien and David Sees, which we want to work towards better empirical explanations about what's taking place before our eyes. And and one alternative way is to tap in other fields of science, including business and management science or economics like evolutionary economics, and see whether we can find there a trajectory for a natural progression. So one idea that's quite mainstream in, in these fields is that dynamic capabilities matter. And and one hypothesis that has not been really tested so far is that dynamic capabilities might be a distinctive property of some digital firms, right? So dynamic capabilities are essentially three things, the sensing of unknown futures, the seizing of business opportunities, which is about getting things done. So once you've sensed an opportunity, you you, you move fast and invest heavily in technology and, and staff and product and launch a business model. And the... Transforming of uh, businesses and organizations by reconfiguration, transform, reconfiguring. So, I, I don't want to be too long on that. And, you know, there's a ton that's been written on this. But, what's one thing that we might be interested in trying to understand is whether dynamic capabilities might explain the durability and diversification of some digital firms and might the lack of dynamic capabilities might explain the misfortune of other firms like say Myspace, Vine, Dig, Uber at certain times or maybe Uber in general or you know WeWork or, or Quibi. And so we are trying to work on that and this is what we are trying to do. So maybe to just address your question head on and tell you what this sort of dynamic framework has to, to offer to policymakers. So one area in which it has a lot of, it has some potential is merger policy. So digital firms like to say that their M&A activity has other explanation than the killer acquisition story that we hear all the time and that you know they're buying products and teams and one clear implication of the dynamic capability theory is that the absorption of these capabilities is extremely difficult it's hard to buy dynamic capabilities now this should not be taken to mean that antitrust must, must subject digital mergers to a negative presumption, but the framework says that some classes of acquisitions are more problematic than others, all right? So there's basically three insights. The more the firms are aligned, the more they are, they look like competitor, the less there's a problem because that's where dynamic capabilities can be better absorbed. So the more identity in business, in, mer- in the merging entity, in the merge, in the parties to the merger, sorry. The, the less the concern from an antitrust standpoint. The second takeaway is that um, the, 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 the age of the firm and that is potentially acquired really matters a big deal. Um, and, he, and here the idea that a firm that is very old has ingrained dynamic capabilities that are very, very hard to actually uh, absorb by the acquiring firm. And the last, of course, is one about survival a firm that's very young—that ties to what Scott was saying—and I'll finish there. A firm that's very young has less capability to turn into a potential competitor, a less a lesser likelihood than a firm that has that has been uh, grown and and that's that's old. And so we should we should look at the age of the companies when we when we look at these mergers. And you know, you want to think about something. You can think about the Microsoft proposed acquisition of Nuance, which is a firm that's 17 years old. And you know, think about what this represents in terms of of uh, competitive uh, threats. Uh, I had to speak very fast. I'm very sorry about that, but uh, I really wanted to, to squeeze all that in.
0: Uh,
1: you did a great job. Perfect timing. Thank you so much. Awarien. what's your opinion of, the, of, of foreign oversight of platforms? Is it, is it headed in the right direction? Is the precautionary principle appropriate for use here? What's going on?
6: Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me first. Thank you to the Mercatus Center and to Alden and and you, Professor Boudreau, for the invitation. Uh, And thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity to talk about my uh, paper, which is titled Precautionary Antitrust. So my point is very simple. It is an idea that I try to, uh, to support and evidence, which says that the precautionary principle has already entered antitrust enforcement. It has already entered antitrust enforcement in Europe and is looming in, in America, in the U.S. So we have the Chicago school uh, from the 70s and 80s who have, uh, was worried about false negatives, right? It emphasized the issue of, of, of false positive. sorry. And then now we have the neo Brandeisians who uh, explain that there has been too many false positives, false negatives for too long, and then we need to have a more aggressive or reinvigorated antitrust enforcement. And so the antitrust debate for decades uh, always takes place between this dichotomy between false positive and, and false negative, trying to reach the optimal antitrust, optimal level of antitrust enforcement. And very interestingly, you don't see too much of talk and debate those days about the false positive and false negative. Well, I think there's an explanation for that. And the explanation is much more deeper, much more fundamental in a sense that it's not a question anymore, any longer about false positive and false negative in an economic objective argumentation. It's about subjective preferences of antitrust enforcers. And the increasing aversion to risks and the increasing willingness to embark into a more precautionary attitude from the antitrust enforcers and also for the market actors. So what is the precautionary principle? Well, this comes from, of course, from international environmental law uh, from the eighties, and it has mainly four elements. First one is a high level of uncertainties. The second one is hypothetical risks. You do not need harm to intervene and regulate. The mere hypothetical risk is sufficient for intervening. Like the, the the motto is, is to be better safe than sorry, right? So you intervene just because there's a remote risk, no uh, need to have actual harm. And then, of course, there's a, this, this threat of irreparable, irre- irreversible damages. If you do not intervene, the situation will never be recovered and you cannot come back to the previous situation which was the the right one and the fourth and final element element, which is very important in the precautionary principle is the reversed burden of proof so it's the market actor who has to demonstrate the the uh, beneficial effect of its product rather than the regulator who has to demonstrate why the regulation is is beneficial and also the lowering of standard of proof and if you look at what's going on in the digital digital market from the digital report in 2019 from the lawsuits from the regulatory proposal not only in europe but also in the us you see that these four elements are, are 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 matched and are present in the discussion in the digital market Uncertainties. We all agree that digital markets evolve in very uncertain uh, environments. And so the uncertainty is, is already here and acknowledged in a number of, of reports and, and proposals. The hypothetical risks, if you look at the language, the rhetoric, we shifted from the consumer harm, from the consumer welfare and the need to evidence a consumer harm to, and I quote from the uh, Digital Markets Act and the European Proposals, to the risks to the structure of the competition or structural risks. And mainly it's the risk of market tipping, uh, right? It's the risks that there's no real harm for uh, specific consumers or for specific market actors, but there's a risk to the structure of the market. These very remote risks justify intervention. And then, of course, is this notion of irre- irreversible, irreparable damages. If you do, if we do not intervene, the harm will be greater. And this is exactly what happened in two thousand seventeen uh, before the European Parliament, when there was one member of the European Parliament who asked the Commissioner Vestager was in charge of competition policy in Europe, and he asked for precautionary measure in European antitrust. And Commissioner Vestager replied that we yes, we will implement precautionary measure. One year later, on the Broadcom case, there were interim measures that were enforced. So also this idea that we need to act quickly, timely, and so we need to reinvigorate as well interim measures, urgent measures, emergency measures. So this is exactly the path that we've seen. For the last 20 years, interim measures were not applied in Europe. And and as part of this precautionary uh, approach, we see that this revival. And finally, the reversed burden of proof. Not only we see that in in, in Europe, because when you are designated as digital gatekeeper, you have to demonstrate uh, uh, the the absence of harm of mergers, but also we see it in in the US with the Calera bill from Senator Klobuchar, where the merger is presumed to be prohibited unless you demonstrate, of course, its potential uh, positive effect. And even this justifications are limited in the uh, Calera um, bill. So all this explain the paradigm shift. So we're no longer between false and false uh, negatives within the error cost framework. We're more into a level of precautionism, precautionism in the sense that do we want a high level of innovation or do we want a high level of precaution? And I think we shift it in terms of paradigm, to explain why there's no longer exposed antitrust liability, but ex-ante regulatory framework with interim measure, but also regulation, we've shifted and we're siding increasingly with precaution. And we're siding increasingly with the precautionary principle. And, and that's the, the positive explanatory power of my hypothesis, which I try to demonstrate. And the normative conclusion is, of course, to say that Precautionary principle is highly costly. It creates some risk-averse incentives, attitudes. Even Europe, I mean, the Europe, uh, European institutions have themselves recognized it. The European institutions themselves said that we need a innovation principle. Council of the European Union, the European Commission have written about the need to overcome the precautionary principle with the innovation principle. So my conclusion would be very simple: we have shifted toward a precautionary antitrust. And it's costly, so that's why we need innovation-based antitrust.
1: Thank you very much. Sensible, sensible conclusion. At least since the 1970s, U.S. antitrust law uh, has been you know, rested solidly on the consumer welfare standard, and it's corollary that that antitrust lawsuits should not advance absent a plausible showing of consumer harm. So I want to ask Scott. We we're now turning to the to the roundtable discussion. Any presenter should feel free to to say something on each question that I pose, but I'm going to pose each question except one to a particular person at first. So I may ask Scott what his opinion is of of this matter. Has there been a showing of consumer harm arising in the marketplace from marketplace abuses by these platforms?
3: Yeah, so let me let me let me take a step back a little bit. So you know, we have this little phrase, consumer welfare. There's a lot packed into that. Um, I just want to take a couple of minutes to kind of un- unpack that a little bit. So, like three, hopefully brief points. So first, I mean, my view is that contemporary antitrust, even since the 1970s, is more capacious than just uh, consumer welfare, or rather that consumer welfare should be redefined to have this more capacious understanding. U.S. antitrust is historically i think correctly long been concerned with the welfare of trading partners even when the trading partner is not you know uh, a purchaser for you know for so example if a bunch of buyers get together at an auction decide to rig bids they can go to jail under us law even though the victims are sellers rather than purchasers conspiracies by employers to depress the wages of workers we've seen some of that action with respect to tech firms again per se illegal criminal when it happens so that's that's one point. Second, when we say consumer welfare, of course we mean purchasers more broadly, right? Not just purchasers who are individuals. So if you have you know price fixing by, I don't know, semiconductor makers, let's say, and the purchasers are are you know mobile phone producers or you know PC manufacturers, obviously they can get in, you know, there's trouble again. There might be there might be jail time for such a conspiracy, even though the consumers are you know firms the purchasers are firms not stick figure consumers now this starts to get us closer to you know to your question so you know, an advertising platform can be in trouble for unlawful conduct that raises prices to advertisers So it's, I think, perfectly legitimate to bring a case against, you know, a platform like Facebook on the view in part that there would be a harm to advertisers in the form of of higher prices. So what would this look like, you know, with competition from an independent Instagram or a non-Facebook-owned Instagram or or WhatsApp? You know, Facebook might have had lower prices to uh, advertisers. Uh, Without that competition, the price is higher. Now, obviously, there's a lot packed into that, including having some instinct or analysis, one hopes, about what that but-for world would uh, look like. But my point for now is just that protecting consumer welfare includes protecting firms from advertisers, from this sort of thing. Finally, within consumer welfare, where we're talking about stick figure individual people as opposed to firms, we we of course mean more than just price. I think there's been some confusion lately about this. I think you know, one, one point that is a potential disagreement with some of the neo-Brandeisians, I think the neo-Brandeisians sometimes caricature consumer welfare as an idea that has been interpreted only to be about prices. So narrowly construed, I would agree that that is a terrible narrowing. But my own understanding of the law thus far is that we care about more than just prices when we care about consumer welfare i mean microsoft is an example too i mean microsoft was not a case about uh the price of windows right it was a it was a case about innovation it was a, a case about product quality to some degree and so i think it's very familiar and comfortable to recognize that there are dimensions to product quality that we could care about quite apart from its uh, cash price and so you know, i think what we're seeing for example is discussion of whether Privacy protections might be different and lower and worse for consumers than they would be in some but-for world in which, for example, Instagram or WhatsApp had been independent. And beyond privacy protections, we could think of product choice, right? We know from the merger guidelines and from intuition that product variety is something that matters. It's a cognizable uh, harm. And so the absence of differentiated business models, for example, WhatsApp's fee-based model, which was... Uh, extinguished by by the acquisition, could be an actionable harm as well. So you know there are a couple of layers. I think I think consumer welfare is a complicated concept, but I think dividing it into those three pieces might help us think a little bit of, uh, more more powerfully about what's going on with these uh, tech cases.
1: What Marianne has behind them is that portrait of uh, Joseph Schumpeter, and I I still think there's no better. Uh, description of the dynamics of competition, including non price competition, that appears in Schumpeter's capitalism, socialism, and democracy. Would anyone else want to chime in on that?
6: Very quickly, I completely agree that uh, uh, the consumer welfare is more than just price effect. And for the sake of argument, some may uh, just want to narrow it down to simplify the argument. So I just completely agree with uh, what Scott has said.
1: Thank you. So the, the plan at this point was to to ex- explore with, with Howard more his concept of light-touch regulations. Let me just put the question to the group. Anyone should feel free to, to jump in first, including including Alden. So as I understand it, Howard wants what he calls light-touch regulation used instead of, of antitrust, but is there a danger that regulation – someone mentioned earlier Gordon Tullock's – or John mentioned Gordon Tullock's work. Is there a danger that regulation – and George Stigler's work just becomes captured. Uh, that 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 regulation evolves into uh, some consumer welfare inimical device for stymieing innovation, for preventing what my Mercatus colleague Adam theorah calls permissionless innovation. Any, anyone have any thoughts on substituting in in the way that you might understand Howard to propose is substituting light touch regulation for antitrust litigation?
2: Thanks for that, uh, Don. Yes, I think there are a couple of Problems. One, it was noted that you know, the idea of access sounds easy. Okay, give regulated access to certain attributes of the platform, fine. But that is costly too. And who is going to determine the terms of access? How will access shape the way that the platform develops and innovates? New features? Well, new features, access have to be given to new features. How will regulation adapt over time? And as you said, another possibility is that, well, the dominant platform might say, well, oh, this is great. I am going to use this access regulation in effect to control the ways in which my platform can be accessed. And, and by the way, it may entrench my dominance versus new platforms that might come up, come around to challenge mine because if everyone is used to, to going to my platform, they'll get access to data that close to the platform, why would anybody want to go to a new platform? So it, it has a possibility of entrenching monopoly. And indeed, one looks at, uh, it's not a perfect analogy, but the European Privacy Regulation developed several years ago. There's some evidence that Google's market power has increased because it can afford uh, the costs of adhering to regulatory mandates regarding privacy, whereas smaller because it has an installed base of you know, thick, some costs in and lawyers. And compliance teams, while smaller smaller competitors don't. So I would just point those out as
1: possible risks. Yeah. Thank you, Alden. Scott, you wanted to say something on this? Yeah. Just
3: just uh, just briefly. I mean, I, I I completely take Alden's point about the possibility that you know regulatory requirements could end up entrenching incumbents. Um, and there's a new paper too small to succeed, that gets into some of this, last name Macy, I forget the co-author, basically looking to uh, financial regulation in the US as an example of where interoperability was intended to uh, open everything up, but it imposed, among other things, imposed pretty heavy requirements on all these other firms. And so you still saw tipping to natural monopoly that regulation might well have embedded. So it's kind of a cautionary tale for certain kinds of regulation. On capture, I just want to point out, you know, there are ways perhaps to ameliorate the capture concern, which I think is a completely legitimate concern. And that would be to have the FTC do it. I mean, the FTC has rulemaking authority. It's got consumer protection authority. We can think of the funeral rule or the eyeglass rule where you have a a consumer protection rule with important competition policy implications, unbundling, for example. The FTC also has authority to bring competition rules, to promulgate competition rules. Not much used. A lot of interest in that right now. And we can talk about whether a tech rule from the FTC would be attractive or not. But the main point I want to make for this purpose is that, you know, I think the capture concern by a broad uh, economy-wide regulator like the FTC may be less compared to an industry-specific regulator, which is where I think we tend to see the capture concern at its uh, apogee. Uh, John?
4: Thanks, Don. Um just a sort of a, a slight variation of Alden's insight is that uh, it also reduces potentially the robustness of a particular digital market if everyone is sort of heavily dependent on a larger dominant incumbent. And plugging into that, and and I mean this beyond just antitrust and, and market efficiency. I think of you know obviously the the pandemic and the lockdown and all the innovation that came in the digital space in terms of video webinars that we're enjoying here with with Zoom and all the sort of innovation in that space. And I just worry that if we are sort of tethered to a to sort of larger firms and everyone has to plug into them and their influence only grows, that it would limit that ability of independent people to come in and just innovate separate from that platform. I could be overstating it. It's just a a question that comes up in terms of the the robustness of markets that worry me a little bit when you don't have sort of independent centers of decision making that aren't related in a way that, yeah, maybe it's good in terms of the consumer movement if we think it's going to be uh, fully stable and that's what they want. And interoperability, is it, it's there's nothing wrong with that. It's very good. Uh, and if it hinders actual competition, that's something we deeply need to worry about. But if it's in a way that it's hindering actually innovation and independent centers uh, where that requires effort, clearly not to be tethered to the larger platform, but it ultimately dynamically will provide more robustness to consumers.
1: Nikola, please. Thanks. So
5: I, th- I think the answer to your question really depends on what the regulation and your- discussion is trying to achieve. And so if you are concerned with sort of safety regulation, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But if you're concerned about the kind of regulation we're talking about here, in Europe, which is essentially something that tries to create line of business restrictions on platforms to so try to avoid some leverage from market A that has tipped to market B that has not tipped, there you, you might have problems and, you know, one clear prediction that emerged is that you will actually undermine inter-platform competition because in digital all that is fluid it's it's very fluid and we're seeing a lot of increasing rivalry between Google, Apple, Facebook, Zoom and you know others competing against each other and and this is this works on the basis of some, some sense of leverage so if you're basically trying to create these lines of business restrictions around the platform core, core business. You are actually probably stifling that very strong next stage of competition between the various big tech firms. Europe doesn't do really, and you know, I think on no other jurisdiction is trying to set in stone sort of line of business restrictions we had in, in utilities in the past. That's the second point I want to make, but they are trying to sort of raise... The costs or limit the benefits to to entry into adjacent markets uh, by requiring sort of condition that if you enter another market you have to share everything you do with with other firms and so by limiting the profits from uh cooperation and entry into other markets you're actually you're actually limiting potential for alliances and a strategy partnerships by reducing the value of asset-specific investments by contractual partners, which works on some sense of exclusivity. And so I think these, the things have very well established sort of second-order effects um, that economists can talk about beyond just removing some market power in the, in the first market. And, and we should be very attentive. The problem, of course, is the regulations are very unclear about what they try to achieve and and I, with the problem we have with the DMA in Europe, I'm talking from Europe here. That it is very unclear what the regulation tries to achieve. So, unless we have a clear choice of economic policy, we can't really discuss these effects, um, be they uh, uh, pro-welfare or or harmful to social welfare.
1: Thank you. Uh, let me let me go back to John for a moment and, and ask: what, what, What's your opinion? What actually? What exactly constitutes? Economic harm in in for, the, for these platform firms, and whatever that is, how can antitrust be appropriately cabined in order to prevent uh, the kind of innovation that we want? so let me get your opinion on that
4: oh, that's that's the big question, Don yeah. and, you know we all i think pretty much all of us want that innovation and dynamic growth of markets which really accounts for almost all the wealth of nations over time that 's Robert solo. And so how do we foster that and incentivize that without dampening it with, uh, with policies that are, are sort of contrary to that objective? But on the other hand, we're worried about anti-competitive harm and misbehavior in markets that are limiting that growth and not allowing for these companies to really take off and so, you know, it's clearly a balancing act. And so antitrust, both legally and economically, have tried to come up with methods to isolate and determine what really is anti-competitive harm. It's not going to be perfect, but obviously this is a system that needs to be administrable. And so the court, you know, the you know, the Pueblo, uh, the Brunswick, Pueblo Bola Mat, which is, I think, a New Mexican bowling alleys, which is it's really amazing how some of these cases are driven by some of the, you know, product markets that are very far away from digital markets, but really still influence us today. But, you know, that case really did set the tone of what anticompetitive harm, which is, you know, in a nutshell, it's more complicated, but uh, not harm to, to direct competitors per se, but to the competitive process to the extent that it reduces the efficiencies of markets and the returns that consumers uh, get from, from a particular market. So when we're talking about platforms, there's an additional wrinkle, if you will. And uh, Scott touched on this. And when he talked about advertisers and the harms to them, you know, take an ad platform that's bringing together two different types of groups, or you could even say two different types of consumers, the users that we typically think of as a consumer, those you and I, who are all trying to get content online and we maybe it's a social network, maybe it's an actual search engine. And then the advertisers who want to get in front of those users, right? Those are two different groups that the platforms are interested in. And so you can clearly have harm to users if there's certain policies and restrictions that stop interoperability or certain types of behaviors that consumers want to engage in, but uh, the market power doesn't allow for them to, to engage in that behavior. Alternatively, you can imagine advertisers being harmed through similar policies that limit their ability to multi-home on other ad platforms or exclusivity requirements or de facto exclusivity requirements. All these things are quite harmful, um, but obviously to two different groups. Now, so the question then becomes, right, what if it has conflicting incentives? And this was kind of AMX, Right? The platform is trying to govern and uh, set rules in a way to uh, balance the interests of both sides. And so you can imagine an ad platform limiting the amount of data. You know, Apple is certainly in the news with their iOS update where they're sort of limiting the amount of information or data that apps or advertisers can, can obtain or use Now, from the user's perspective, not maybe all of them, but some of them, they find this is a benefit, a huge benefit to them to limit that, whereas advertisers is clearly affecting their monetization. And so, again, that governance decision isn't necessarily good or bad or harmful or not harmful unless we look at the totality of the effect on both sides of the group. And that's really my reading of Amex. I know. There's a lot of strong opinions on m x and and uh, I know that's not the subject of of today uh, but I think uh m x for me, a reading of that is look, we need to take that in account whether the court did it the right way or could it have been proved. That's a a separate debate. Um, But what it also says is that we don't always have to bring the full armada of looking at both sides. There are certain types of decisions that might dictate that we focus on one side or the other. Scott mentioned the advertising example. And I think, yeah, we don't need to go to the user side per se and balance this and create this huge uh, expert battle between these two groups. Um, Sometimes you can limit to one side. Uh, but the the point being made is that the platforms bring a complexity that we 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 might not see in a single sided
1: market Orien, you had something you wanted to add
6: yeah just ju- just on the uh, on what is harm in a uh, digital market. I think harm is everywhere uh, as long as as soon as you're disruptive you're harmful right as you as as soon as you're efficient innovative you're harmful i mean a lot of companies have been harmed by some innovative, efficient uh, companies. Just to think, very um, classic example of of the uh, taxi drivers. Taxi drivers have been harmed, very powerfully harmed by Uber. Uh, The hotel industry has been harmed by Airbnb. And so the question is, have the consumers been harmed? And that is a very different question. Uh, some harm are very inherent to the competitive process and to competition itself. And some harm might be anti competitive. And so the difficulty of antitrust enforcement is to tell apart these harms, which are beneficial to the competitive process because it disrupts this. I mean, it's a process of creative just destruction, right? Uh, and those harms, which precisely are allegedly. Uh, anti-competitive. And, and I'm fearful by the fact that this shift for, toward more precautionary antitrust uh, leads to conflate these harms and to not tell apart any longer uh, those beneficial harm because of innovation or because of increased efficiency with those anti-competitive harm. in a sense that just think of this again, this precautionary approach, saying, like as soon as there's a harm, as soon as there's some interest group which is harmed because of a new technology or new innovation, then you may have some quick interim measure that will stop this uh, process. And, and you may have, because of regulation, you may have some regulatory compliance and regulatory intervention before the evidence of uh, harm and before the very necessary, as John has said, before the necessary balancing exercise between anti-competitive harm and pro-competitive harm under the rule of reason. So. I think when we say uh, uh, what are the harm in digital market, I think we may lead to see that any kind of harm may end up being deemed to be anti-competitive if we increasingly take risk-averse uh, perspective to antitrust enforcement through these regulatory compliance standards.
1: Yeah, I mean this, this this gets back to the false positive, false negative thing you mentioned you mentioned earlier. Alden, what was that case that? That uh, predatory pricing case in the eighties was it Mat- Matsushita? Is that the name?
2: You're not re- you're referring uh, Matsushita, sure, but I mean, you're not referring also to, to the Brook Group predatory pricing. No, 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 no. So it's so Matsushita.
1: I think it was Justice Powell. He, he, so this is not just, as you know, this is not just. Yes. this is not because of the uh, of, of, the, of the, the, the new kind of economy. In that case, I think it was Justice Powell who wrote that. You know, one of the one of the re- one of the problems with laws against predatory pricing is that. Predatory price cutting looks exactly like competitive price cutting. It's right. very difficult to distinguish the two. And,
2: and indeed, the old style cons, uh, Supreme Court thinking, the old Utah Pie case, in which uh, out of state competition sort of brought benefits to consumers and the selling of these pies, uh, that, that, that discussion of predation really was, was aimed at protecting incumbents, the in, special interest group of whatever group. <laughs> you know, just uh, apropos of what Aurélien uh, was saying here, it's it's it's, it's very much that. But I think the old anti antitrust before Chicago school and, other, and more law and economics thinking, I should say, yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court seemed uh, seemed oblivious to that. So it's interesting.
1: So that's a, actually a nice lead-in to another question I want to put to Nicola. This is still, it's Fairly a new economy. These are these are different kind. We have these networks are much more elaborate and important now than were networks back you know from the 1980s on. Uh, and yet, a lot of antitrust learning, a lot of antitrust practice is still kind of rooted in that old that old the old economy. Do, do, do you see a practical problem? And it can and if so, can it be overcome? Of taking the way we think about traditional. Firm structure and competitive practices, and and can, can we move to analyzing the modern economy in in ways that 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 are sensible? Because um, it seems to me just a very difficult a, a very difficult transition. I wonder what your thoughts are on that.
5: Yeah, thanks. That that's a great question, and uh, so I'll be very I'll be very clear. So I think there's the problem is not really with with the law, uh, but more with the economics and and so there's there's a lot of leeway in, in the law to accommodate the the new empirical realities of the digital economy and you know I could cite a long line of judicial authorities in the u s that would support this you know the flexibility of the consumer welfare standard uh, Weyerhauser, uh f t c versus um Indiana federation of dentists uh u s Steel, um trinco you know these cases have sufficient flexibility built in to to support theories of liability and theories of efficiency and so we can we can work with that. I think where the problem lies is in the economic sense the problem is that the economics are sort of contraptions or artifacts which which really focus analysis on partial equilibrium and and static uh, phenomena where yeah, the facts should be guided by something more agile and more holistic and more dynamic. And so, to be more, so to be very concrete about that, I think the focus of analysis today in the economics treatments of these cases should move from um, market power to anti-competitive conduct. We should focus more on on the business practice itself, and and then the focus of analysis should move from business conduct viewed through the lens of a relevant markets to business practice viewed through the lens of the business organization. And so when the external and internal environment of the business entity is seriously taken into account, you can see a margin of progression for antitrust and antitrust that says things which correspond more to to the empirical world that we are looking at you know with all its complexity and uh, it's it's dynamism so to be very i'll try to be very concrete to give you a very concrete example here uh, when i talk about ecosystems in my work i say that conduct analysis business conduct analysis should focus on rapacious conduct that it that is not but should be self-defeating in a normal ecosystem environment so for instance, I would go after big tech firms when they occasionally use business users data to snatch a quick profit, or to, to use self-preferencing to snatch a, a quick profit in adjacent markets. And so the point here is not that antitrust policy should penalize big tech firms when they, when they vertically integrate or self-preference but the point should be dependent on the, the ecosystem strategy the business organization. This ties to an idea of economist John Hicks from 1954, where he said that firms should behave as stickers and not snatchers. So, you know, you could have an antitrust rule which would require firms to provide evidence that the practice is part of a long-term entry plan or a a documented policy of, of ecosystem management. And if this is not the case, then the restraint should be deemed Unreasonable under the rule of reason and attract liability, right? That sort of idea that's a, an ecosystem perspective might be able to provide and, and, and supplement the existing analysis by adding informational uh, wisdom to the treatment effects.
1: Thank you. Uh, Scott wants to weigh in on this.
3: Yeah, Please. just briefly. I mean, uh, I, I, wanna build on, I wanna build on the last comment slightly. It's it's certainly true that in these kinds of markets it's often hard to tell what's going on. And so I'm, I'm very stimulated by this idea that like, we well, let's go look, let's go ask them. Let's ask them as a matter of business strategy. What can we learn about what they think as opposed to trying to provide an internally and an entirely external economic lens. It's still economics. It's just economics is trying to harness, you know, the facts as the you know, parties understand them. Now of course, that could be self-serving and we've had some enforcement actions in the U S that I think have foundered on to some degree on self-serving testimony by the parties. So I think we need to take self-serving testimony like that with a grain of salt, but at least in the situations where they basically confessed, we have a, we have a, we have a kind of one-sided test that could help us find liability. I'm thinking of Microsoft, but I'm also thinking of Facebook. So in situations where the internal documents show a plan, a plan to, I don't know if we call it an ecosystem or not, but to move the market in a self-serving, exclusionary way, in a way that doesn't make sense except for its tendency to exclude, we might have powerful evidence. Now, some people will hear intent in the back of their head as I say this, and that may in turn create sort of flashing lights. This is a kind of intent evidence, but it's not intent evidence in the sense of let's kill them. Right. Which, of course, could be very misleading because a lot of harms, harm construed broadly in the way that Aurelian mentioned, might not actually be cognizable because they are in pursuit of competition. But at least in situations where, as in, I would say, Facebook, Instagram, you have high level and hard thinking about why they're doing this. They're doing this to squash a nascent competitor. There's only a certain number of social mechanics and once you've gotten one of them, it's really hard for anybody else to come in. We should take that as evidence that when they say who they are, and what they're up to, we should believe them in those circumstances because it's basically a statement against interest. It's a statement against interest, moreover, that is deeply rooted in an understanding of the economics of their business. And so you know, I completely agree with Frank Easterbrook that often wisdom lags behind the market and often you know, regulators are the last people to figure out what's actually going on. Now, usually that's taken as an attack on the inhospitality tradition, but it's also meaningful when flipped. That is when parties, smart people, folks who are obsessed about their business and understand their business, say that they're doing this, an acquisition or exclusionary conduct, in order to do something anti-competitive, that that's powerful evidence. And you know, when we talk about flipping burdens, one could imagine without a formal flipping of burdens, uh, a fact finder thinking, okay, maybe there's arguments and facts on the other side that get them out of trouble. But at least by virtue of having said that this is what they're up to, they are in some trouble, right? That this is probative evidence about effects. Probative evidence that we've understood for a century, at least as far back as Chicago Board of Trade, is meaningful in understanding and predicting effects.
1: Thank you. Uh, So we're going to go in Just a moment to the Q&A in the last 20 minutes we have, but let me ask Alden if he wants to say any closing words here at, at this juncture for the round table.
2: Okay, thanks. I think that's been an, an excellent discussion. Just a couple of closing points. I mean, and I think obviously the speakers here understand this, but just for a broader audience, I think it's important in looking at these, at different uh, proposals to regulate and regulate in a particular manner or to impose certain, say uh, very specific antitrust remedies. Uh, Hayek, Peter Hayek, warned us about the pretense of knowledge uh, that federal regulators in trying to solve perceived marketplace problems will act without access to the knowledge available to marketplace participants uh, and may make things worse. In a similar vein, uh, UCLA economist, Harold Demsatz, wrote about the Nirvana fallacy that government efforts to impose a perfect solution to perceived market imperfections will have unintended and often harmful consequences. So I would hope that this could be uh, kept in mind that we're not looking at a perfect system. As even Justice Breyer said, antitrust is an administrative system. And there's going to be an error in, your, uh, in enforcement decisions, in remedies, in decisions also to regulate or, or not regulate. And in looking at evidence and looking at options, appropriate caution that was pointed uh, highlighted by Hayek and Demsess and others should be kept in mind.
1: Thank you. So we have um, just over 15 minutes remaining. So it, it, those of you in the audience, if you want to ask a question, just just do so in the Q and A, um, and then I'll, I'll see us. We have we have one question up right now. So let me read it. And any one of our speakers uh, all of our speakers should feel free to to weigh in uh this is a question what exactly are the real world problems that law whether antitrust or otherwise might actually address with regard to conduct other than mergers single firm conduct seems difficult to address in the us but much easier to address elsewhere under a looser standard such as abusive dominant position as a practical matter most people in the country might, by that I assume that the questioner means the U.S., might well say that the number one problem is access, free speech, deplatforming. What, if any, law can or should address this? Is there a regulatory role for a competition agency in this matter, such as the FTC?
6: Perhaps very quickly, on the, on the point of that question where it refers to the abuse of dominant position, is very interesting because that's part of the report from the House where they recommend that uh, section two will be perhaps changed to some sort of abuse of dominant position in explicit reference to the European um, language, and 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 this is uh, also very interesting, so that we can lower the the burden of proof, or at least what is necessary in order to demonstrate uh, monopolization uh, conduct. And, and, and again, uh, that is a very interesting because now we come to some discussions where non-dominant platforms, non-dominant firms may be still liable and may be uh, liable for some practice, uh, because of, of their conduct. So uh, it's. The question is uh, whether dominant positions or monopolizations. But sometimes we may no longer need monopolization or dominant positions for finding or at least regulating some platforms, even if they are not uh, dominance. And that's what would we'll be um, leading to in terms of regulation if we move away from antitrust. I think antitrust is is, is a very principled way of looking at uh, competition issues, and and to go more for uh, regulation, uh, or as this uh, question hints to, um, will open the door to also finding liable some companies which may not end up being even dominant in their own relevant markets. And so what the FTC can do, uh, well, if it mimic the uh, Digital Market Act, well, it may end up finding non-dominant platforms liable for some conduct. If we do so, then we, we, we fully, uh, as I assume, uh, we're fully in a more risk averse attitude where non-dominant platforms may be find liable, liable for things which, am, which per definition, do not have major competitive impact in the market because they are non-dominant. And so I think uh, what the FTC can do, uh, if you follow the more precautionary approach, it would be to mimic what's going on in, in Europe with the Digital Market Act, but assuming that we want also the unintended consequences that follow from, uh, from this type of regulation. John?
4: Yeah, uh, first, con- whenever Aurelian talks about precautionary interest, I think of Tom Cruise and Minority Report, trying to solve crimes before it happens. I don't, I always, it's a long, old movie, no one knows what I'm talking about. Okay. It's exactly the <laughs> <laughs> but But, um, you know, part of the question talked about the platforming and the concern of that and the intersection with competition. You know, and this is something, uh, this is just a personal thought, obviously, I don't have any empirical backing for it, but I'm not sure deplatforming is a competition concern, meaning that it's happening solely based off of market share and market power. Obviously, the most notable ones are the large platforms, Facebook and Google and YouTube and various things. And if we're talking about Parler and and their episode or or, news about COVID and treatments and vaccines and those discussions, clearly there's been sort of, it seems almost a universal approach where there's been some uh, censorship, not censorship, that's uh, you know I should be careful of that term, but uh, uh, moderation on on platforms for certain opinions. And I, I, I don't know if that's a competition problem. And I genuinely say that because um, I think it's across the board. You know, Parler was uh, deplatformed, if you will, by, by both big and small during that episode. And I think some of these uh, discussions are being moderated heavily on big and small platforms. And so uh, if we think that's a problem, I don't think competition, more competition is going to solve it. Um, That doesn't mean that the regulatory solution is better. Um, Alden just mentioned uh, the, you know, the concerns that Demsets and Hyatt's has. And I'm not even sure, you know, even to get to the point that Demsets and Hyatt are concerned about, which is this idea that uh, even if we have the right objective implementing it, we are limited by our information, as well as the fallacies that we might fall under. But You know, the first layer is even uh, the Tulloch and McChesney arguments that uh, it's not even clear that we would get to that pure objective that we would want. And so I'm not even sure that the Hyatt-Demsett's concerns would even be in play if we can't get past uh, Tulloch and McChesney's concern. And so, uh, you know, so those are some thoughts on that censorship aspect of the of the of the of the attendees question.
1: Thank you. So I have another question from the from the audience. I I will read it verbatim. Uh, I agree with Alden that the law ought to focus more on anti competitive conduct than on market power. But it seems to me that the most serious problem antitrust law faces is uncertainty about the economic implications of the conduct at issue. Isn't market power a useful screen to help identify those instances in which there is less basis for thinking of efficiency as a default explanation under uncertainty? Alden?
2: Yes, yeah. I, I think certainly market power is the core, you know, fine analysis on the consumer welfare principle. Does a firm, first of all, engaging in particular conduct have market power? If it doesn't have market power, we may not understand why it's engaging in the conduct. It may be experimenting, but it, one really should not be too concerned about it. Uh, and I think it is, it is still a useful screen. And, of course, the trick is determining market power and what, in what area. You know, obviously, platforms may be operating a lot of different markets. And, uh, and, and you also need to be careful about, uh, as I say, when, even when, if there is market power, there may be deficiencies associated with restraints on one side of a two-sided market, you know, that sort of American Express concerns. So, no, I agree. I would not ditch market power if you do that. I think uh, current case law analysis, certainly under the rule of reason, is really centers on, on understanding market power, either through direct evidence or just through uh, facts. But, but you don't want to dipsack, in my view.
1: Does anyone else want to weigh in on that on that question? Scott? Yeah, I mean,
3: it's certainly true that market power can be helpful, right, in answering the question. It might be for the reason that Doug's question suggests for – updating one's priors about the relative likelihood of a an anti-competitive effect versus a pro-competitive effect. Of course, it could also just be used as a as a blunt screen for getting rid of cases where we just don't think there's going to be any meaningful effect. Not so much because we're updating our priors, though it might have that salutary benefit, but simply because we don't think there's a there there that we need to worry about. And so let's just stop thinking about it because these firms are just a drop in the bucket, let's say. I think there is a potential concern that... It just becomes a trap and a barrier to plaintiffs trying to bring cases because we end up being locked in uh very erudite with very much inside baseball very much within antitrust doctrine battles about what is the right way of defining a market and so you know i think it is difficult to find economists who would say i think what we really need is more emphasis on market definition as a way of understanding anti-competitive effects. And Doug isn't suggesting that it needs to take the form of market definition. But I think there is some basis for concern that our legitimate interest in market power has metastasized or reified or somehow taken us too far down a path of caring about market definition such that it becomes a kind of scholastic fetish uh, albeit one with extremely high stakes for the outcome of cases, where you have outcomes that are informed by an economic analysis at some level, but aren't deeply economics as understood by, let's say an IO economist who's trying to figure out whether there is an anti-competitive effect in a particular uh, in a particular context.
1: Thank you. Uh, Nikolai, you have something to say on yeah. this?
5: Yeah, that's a very uh, thoughtful uh, and great question. And I understand it as being when I said we have to focus on conduct more than market power, the question seems to be: But doesn't market power remain a good enough proxy for inefficiency in situations of uncertainty? That's how I understand the question. And and I think if you if you think about the documented properties of digital platforms, which is you know they work on these very strong network effects, which is essentially. Economies of scale on the demand side, there's a very strong argument that there is efficiency in market power in digital markets. So there are the efficiency to industrial concentration in these markets. And you know, lots of economists would agree with that with that statement. And therefore, um, the implication for policymakers is that actually market power is a pretty poor screen for, for inefficiency in markets of these kinds where there is uncertainty. And therefore, I think we actually should rely on that insight from economic works, which dates back to the 1970s, 80s, and has been refined in more recent works to actually move away from market power as a poor screen for inefficiency and and not fall back into the sort of idea that it's a good screen as the Supreme Court did in, in Amex, where, as Scott was saying, it basically reified the market power and market definition evaluation by saying this is the first step in any inquiry even though you have conduct which, on its face, is is welfare reducing, so that's um, my simple question. I hope it was simple enough.
1: That's great, thank you. Well, we are near an end. I mean, antitrust now has a long history in the U.S. It actually dates back to 1889. We had states had some antitrust statutes even before the Sherman Act in 1890, and uh, you know we see one one of the one of the marvelous things we see regardless of your opinion of the merits or demerits of antitrust is uh, as a dynamic entrepreneurial economy changes, um, antitrust authorities react to it sometimes wisely, often unwisely. And then economists and and, and legal scholars, they react to the reaction. Then we get this growth in knowledge of understanding of markets and of competition. And I, I think that's what's going on here. I mean, I learned a great deal from this discussion. I thank each of our panelists I want to thank uh, my Mercatus colleagues for putting this together and especially Alden this is really his event uh, he conceived it he sent out the invitations and uh, I'm basically just along for the for the ride so thank you Alden for your efforts in in this before we close, I want to ask if you have any parting words that you'd like to add
2: okay I'll just say uh, thank you I think this is, I agree with Don thanks for your moderation but also I think the different perspectives, the growth of sophisticated perspectives from more dynamic approaches to precautionary principle and how that uh, it's a variation from uh, error cost, I think we've had a good, very good earring. And all of these different perspectives, including the role of market power, are forming the academic debate. And the real question is to what will that start having an effect on case law And on regulation, if, as it well appears, the FTC starts regulating in this area. So I I thank all the panelists for their excellent contributions.
1: Orian has something he wants to say here at the end. Please.
6: Just very quickly to react to your historical uh, discussion on the, the, the birth of antitrust. I mean, if you look at antitrust, it arrived with a wave of innovations in the late 19th century, with a wave of disruptive, the golden age, the wave of disruptive innovations And again, a century later, it's not that surprising that we see this kind of tech clash and we see this huge, uh, massive wave of legislative proposals that complement this wave of disruptive innovation. So if you look at historical patterns, it's not that that surprising that we see more uh, regulatory uh, interventions for competition issues. That's exactly what happened more than a century ago. And so... in antitrust, we go from paradigm shift to another paradigm shift. Of course, we, there's there's a shift of paradigm from exposed antitrust liability to ex ante what I call precautionary antitrust. And, and the, the the shift will shift again, but uh, that will be for perhaps for the next generation.
1: That's a great point to end on. That's exactly where antitrust emerged in this incredibly dynamic era of the 1880s when transcontinental railroads uh, arrived in the US just a few de- decades earlier. And we had centralized meatpacking and the rise of the petroleum industry. Let me thank each of you again. It's been an honor and a pleasure uh, to moderate this discussion again, thanks to Alden. Let's keep up the good good work and hard thinking about these, these complex and important issues. Thank you all.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bridge Policy Download. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. If you would like to request a meeting with one of our scholars or ask them a question, please email Mercatus Outreach at mercatus.gmu.edu for more information.